Hello and welcome to Coronavirus, The Whole Story, our award-winning podcast on every aspect of coronavirus and how it's affecting us. My name's Vivian Parry. I'm a writer, broadcaster and UCL alumna. And every week I'm given the key to the treasure chest that is UCL's astonishing range of expertise on all things coronavirus. But no matter what aspect of coronavirus is under discussion here at Covey Central, there's one thing that keeps cropping up the environment. Loyal listeners may remember that we spoke to scientists who said that new-to-man diseases like COVID are inevitable if animal habitats are degraded. We also talked to researchers deeply concerned by the explosion in production of single-use plastics needed for PPE. So we thought it was about time we dedicated a whole episode to the environment and in particular to climate change, its role in the rise of COVID and even whether COVID might be our planet's saviour. If you're excited about today's episode and want more environment-focused content, then you'll find much, much more like this in UCL's Beyond Boundaries conference, which starts today, the 19th of October, and runs until the 29th. You can find out more and register for free on Eventbrite and by following at UCL underscore SDGs on Twitter. So let me introduce my guest for this week. I'm joined from Kenya by Professor Jackie McGlade from the Institute for Global Prosperity. Jackie is Professor of Natural Prosperity, Sustainable Development and Knowledge Systems. What a top professor title that one is. She researches how human societies interact with natural systems and has developed different frameworks for measuring natural prosperity. My second guest this week will be well known to many of you, Chris Rapley, a professor of climate change and chair of the UCL Policy Commission on the Communication of Climate Science. As well as researching the impacts of climate science, Chris is committed to educating the wider public about these impacts. He co-wrote the play 2071, The World Will Leave Our Grandchildren, which was performed at the Royal Court. And he's also been awarded the Edinburgh Science Medal for his work contributing to the well-being of humanity. And last but absolutely not least, I'm joined by Dr. Rachel Freeman from the Bartlett School of Environment, Energy and Resources. Rachel is a research fellow in energy transitions and her research focus is on sustainability and how we can transition to a low carbon economy. Right, we'll begin with a big question. Jackie. Easy peasy one for you. Did climate change cause coronavirus? Well, we don't have any direct evidence that climate change is influencing or caused COVID, but we do know that climate change changes how we relate to other species on Earth. And that really matters to our health and, in fact, our risk for infection. So as the planet is heating up, animals, big and small, on land and sea, they're sort of headed to the poles to get out of the heat, which means that animals are coming into contact with other animals that they normally wouldn't do. And that creates this opportunity for pathogens to get into new hosts. So we're sort of creating new pools of zoonoses. So many of the root causes of climate change also increase the risk of pandemics. So things like deforestation, because of agricultural purposes, largest cause of habitat loss worldwide and really affecting climate change. That loss of habitat forces animals to migrate. They come into contact with others and people and they share germs and viruses, just like COVID. So these large livestock farms are also a possible source which spill over infections. And, and therefore, what we see is that climate, the climate pandemic, so to speak, that, that nexus is really about how our health is being put at risk because of all these different things that are going on. 
So I think we'll take that as a qualified yes. A qualified yes. It was a long answer. Sorry. <laughs> Coronavirus suddenly seems to have had a big impact on our awareness of climate change, uh, Jackie. I mean, a lot of people mm. are seeing this as a wake-up call. Totally. Has there been an increased response in climate activism? One of the things I do is uh, track in the social media across all these continents, you know, six million entries an hour, what people are saying. And it's fascinating because uh, before the coronavirus, we actually had very little, uh, what I would say, science content going on in the general public in the social media. What has happened, of course, is that as things have changed, as traffic has gone down in cities, people are realizing what clean air really feels like. And so the combination of coronavirus changing people's local environments has really been, um, it's really significant in the conversations. And on top of that, people are now reaching out for the science. So air quality, uh, the, the fact that air quality affects our ability to withstand and get over the, the, um, the, the, side, the side effects and the main effects of the, of the COVID really have come together. People understand it now personally. It's not just something at distance. And that's no bad thing, to be quite honest. Have different communities responded to this in different ways? Yes, completely. I mean, I'm sitting here in Nairobi in Africa um, and out in the bush, completely different approach. Obviously, a lot of people here in Africa were exposed to things like Ebola, um, and they're much, much more vigilant in some sense. I'm not saying that that makes everybody uh, able to uh, undertake kind of social protocols like distancing and so on, because people still have to go to work here. But there's a healthy respect for what the pandemic looks like when you're sitting in a country which potentially doesn't have that safety net compared to, say, what we see in the US and the UK. But as we monitor emotions using these semantic technologies, we see that there's an elevated, across the world, an elevated level of fear, anxiety, apprehension. Um, and these are then played upon by events as they come in, whether they're political or real um, sadness waves when you know, a lot of people die and new statistics are put out. So what I would say is around the world, there is a heightened sense of those six major emotions around grief and sadness and so on, anger, that just can spark off other things. And that's effectively why we see small events causing these cascading effects out onto the street and a lot of political debate. I believe it's because of that heightened emotional setting. And just tell us, how is COVID affecting Kenya? Uh, it's taken its toll, there's no doubt. Tourism just literally stopped dead overnight, and that had an amazing impact on the economy. For example, out in the bush where my family is, the Maasai, uh, they have not seen sight of tourists, and therefore there's no money, there's no revenues, nothing's coming in. So it's survival mode there. Um, but on the whole, the, the whole country is now getting back to having the kids come back to school. So we have some classes back in school, some universities are opening for their final years. But on the whole, people have stayed at distance and a lot of people stayed out in the farms, in the bush, out in the upcountry areas. So it's had a huge environmental and economic impact. But uh, there's, I won't say there's a greater sense of resilience, but there is a way in which people are able to survive, I think, far deeper cuts and changes than perhaps they are in Europe. What's interesting about all of this is that we talk about a greater awareness of the environment and 
we're all hoping that that will translate into a long-term focus on the environment. But actually, might economic concerns intervene? Because after all, in the UK, and it's, you've just said in, in Kenya, because of the impact on tourism, you're seeing a lot of people lose their jobs and those are going to be top of the agenda and that might not be good for the environment and in fact almost certainly isn't. I'm fairly sure in most capitals uh, governments are discussing precisely this but I have great hope because I am really seeing that things are moving. We had the bringing together not only of the Paris uh, sort of climate outcomes, in other words, you know, net zero uh, emissions and so forth. But then the powerhouse of bio- biodiversity coming in, you know, net positive gain. Now, these big policy issues are genuinely changing the conversation. And I am pretty optimistic that it's not about build back better. It's not about business as usual, because I think fundamentally what I can detect from these uh, sort of different semantics that we look at is that there is a sense of purpose. People are seeking more meaning in their lives. And when you have people who are being led more by values as opposed to necessarily by economics, you get different outcomes. And environmental conditions are one of those. So I am an optimist. I know many people say that. But I do see that some of the log jams in the policy world have started to move aside. And even in the UK, we have these new plans for environment land management, We have ambitious targets being set at local levels by county councils, Essex and others, talking about 30% of land setting aside for biodiversity gains. These are all things that six months ago were almost inconceivable. And I think once you start down that road of localized, really empowering people to change their local environment and create local economies, then actually you've got a different conversation going on, which is not driven only by national policy. Thank you. That's uh, fascinating. And and at the beginning of lockdown, of course, when everyone was inside and all the public places were shut, there was a lot of talk about nature returning and the potential for coronavirus to curb some of the impacts of climate change. Chris, was this the case, really, or was this just a fervent imagination? I, I think it was a bit of a romantic hope. It, it's certainly true that given the opportunity, nature can recover very quickly. Um, I'm a great fan of the of this sort of rewilding work that uh, we've, we've seen carried out by Is- Isabella Tree and her, her people at NEP that, that shows that the uh, the environment has a remarkable capacity to um, to recover if you if you allow it to. But I don't think that everybody being constrained to their homes for a while had a massive effect on on the environment. It had a tremendous effect on air quality. You know, I I, I still uh, keep close to the to the world of, of satellite observations of the planet, and the the drop in that period from March to April in um, nitrogen dioxide concentrations over the major European cities was fifty percent. You know, it's a fifty percent drop, and and I guess we all saw those pictures uh, from Delhi and so on, where uh, you, know, you could see see into the distance and see a blue sky in ways that hadn't occurred for decades. But no, I, I, I think, unfortunately, things are, are slowly returning to normal. We had all hoped that uh, we would build back differently in a way that um, paid more attention to nature. But I, I'm not sure that that is really happening. So a bit of a wave of pessimism coming from you. But do you think it's had any positive impact on the climate crisis, COVID? Yeah. Oh, I, I think it has. I think it's brought home to people that 
planning ahead is a smart thing to do. I mean, a, a major pandemic was uh, either number one or, or close to number one on the UK's risk register and indeed many other nations' risk registers for, for a decade or more. And you, what we've seen is that those countries that took that seriously and, and carried out basic risk management, you know, how you how you reduce the probability of something happening and how you reduce the impact of it if it does happen. Uh, so there are some exemplars with with COVID, uh, you know, South Korea and some of the Asian nations and so on, New Zealand, where, where they had not only planned, but they also reacted very quickly. And then there are other examples, some very close to home, where the response was was evidently a shambles. You can you can see that in the in the mortality statistics. And this is a lesson in uh, about long term thinking and long term planning. And and that's our problem with climate change. Our Paleolithic brains are tuned to the sort of two hundred millisecond response time, so that we can jump out of the way if something falls on us. Or given that there's been an arms race in the biological world, we can jump out of the way if a, if a snake strikes at us or whatever it is. So we have a very, very, very strong uh, system to respond to um, very short timescale uh, threats. And, and indeed, uh, our, our brain operates on those timescales. The fact that we're holding this conversation without long lags between you know, question and answer uh, shows that we're tuned to, to, to live in the moment. And uh, we, we react much more than we think. And, and the problem with climate change, like so many uh, of these other environmental issues, biodiversity loss and so on, is that we're suffering slow violence and, and our bodies just don't react to that. We, we need uh, institutional mechanisms to allow us to deal with those sorts of problems. And unfortunately, those institutional mechanisms aren't always that effective. And in the case both of this pandemic and climate change, uh, we're struggling. So I did ask you, had it had any positive impact? <laughs> <laughs> well, well, okay. Let me let me twist that round then and say yes. Uh, the point is, that I think that's brought it's brought that home to a lot of people who are saying we we really really have to take these things seriously and do the risk management properly and do better. And and I think there's lots of evidence. I see it uh, all the time from business, uh, government. Uh, local people. I, I particularly like Jackie's comment about uh, localism and and communities. I mean, one thing that COVID has done is it's um, brought home to us uh, the value of having community support. You know, which is all, pretty much all we've been able to access uh, while we've been fairly heavily locked down. So I, th- I think it's been a real object lesson, and and hopefully we will learn those lessons and do a lot better in future. And handling climate change will be one of one of the outcomes. Now, I kind of hesitate to ask you this, Chris, but has it had any negative impacts? It, it's it's difficult to say. I, 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 I th- well, certainly there's the PPE, isn't there? I mean, the explosion in the use of single-use plastics. Well, it, I mean, as, as you know, if you go for a walk, you, you will see lots of abandoned, you know, masks and so on. And so the animals are going to be choking on those along with the plastic bottles and everything else that we're trying to get uh, cleared up. So, yes, there have been some, some immediate negative uh, impacts you know, they've just exacerbated the problems that we face already. But I, I really think that the mindset as we move on, because I, I hear people say when we when we get over COVID, we're never going to completely get over. COVID will be with us, but we will find ways of managing it. And I think we'll learn a great deal from that. And and as Jackie said, it's it's engaged people in a way, you know, they, they have been embroiled in this, whether they like it or not. And so it started a, an adult conversation that 
wasn't uh, quite as prevalent previously. So I, I think as we move into the new world where many of us will continue to work uh, a lot of our time from home, teleworking, that will have a positive effect that will reduce transport emissions and so on. You know, we will see what emerges from this. It's difficult to say at present what the net result will be, but there have been some negative aspects and some positive ones. I was going to ask you what you thought the uh, impact would be long term. I mean, imagine, you know, 10 years from now, you're looking back. What do you think the effect might be out at those margins? Well, probably the biggest impact as we look back is is that it turned out that we could kind of turn on a sixpence, uh, even though we thought we couldn't. So, you know, things have happened in you know, the last few months that were kind of unimaginable, just in terms of the politics of trying to manage the economy and manage people's uh, protection at the same time. The way anybody who had, for example, invested in large office blocks now finds that their future is uncertain away in a way that they couldn't possibly have imagined. So the, so the world will be different. And, and all of the time that we've been told, oh, well, you know, it's impossible to make major structural changes in society because we're all locked in, um, that's been demonstrated to be wrong. So I suspect that the long-term effect will be that people will be able to point to that and say, no, you don't. You know, we can make these changes if we really want to. So let's get on with it. Yes, much has been discovered to be a complete lie, like the, you know, people can't work from home because they won't be productive. It's impossible to allow uh, people with disabilities to work from home. And that's turned out to be a lie. You know, all those things, uh, it's been a very rapid reassessment of of what we thought was possible, as as you say. Well, and, and, and of all the things that are changing exponentially, it's computer technology, artificial intelligence, our, our, our ability to link in the way that we can now. If, if, if COVID had hit us five years ago, it would have been a rather different story, I think, wouldn't it? And we're still in that transition. But what we can expect over the next five or 10 years is uh, quite unbelievable and unimaginable changes in terms of our connectivity and our capacity to do things with digital technology. And so from that point of view, our power to modify the way we live is, is growing all the time. And I must admit, there was a kind of conspiracy almost in which at the time of lockdown, it was the most sensationally beautiful weather <laughs> that we'd had in many a long time. And I think people were able to see the environment, perhaps in a way that they hadn't seen it for years and years and years. It was extraordinary. I think so. I saw a study the other day. People were were saying during that first month where they could hear the birds, they're saying, do you know what? The, the birds are singing differently. And everybody said, no, 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 you can just hear them. But there was a study done that showed that the birds were singing differently because their noise environment had abated. And so they were able to hear each other a lot better and they changed the way they performed to mark out their territories and so on. So I think that's rather a lovely um, <laughs> consequence of a rather horrible experience. But yes, nature responded in many ways. Thanks, Chris. Now you're listening to Coronavirus, The Whole Story, a podcast brought to you by UCL Minds. And if there's a question about coronavirus you'd like our researchers to answer, please email us at minds at ucl.ac.uk or tweet at UCL. In many ways,
ways, coronavirus has been the first test for the UK in terms of how we're going to respond to the inevitable climate change crises of the future, both in terms of what decisions the government makes and the responses of society to those choices. Rachel, let me turn to you now. What have we learned about the government's response to coronavirus in terms of future emergencies? I don't know whether I dare ask that question, given the shambles we've found ourselves in. Yeah, I, I don't know if I would call it complete shambles. I think the the um, the interesting thing is what the government have had to do in a very short time. So they've had to obviously try to make sure all our essential services are running while fighting the pandemic, which has these whole characteristics of, you know, you have to try and keep people apart, keep the economy going. And um, because we're lucky enough in this country to have a really good healthcare system, we expect, you know, quite good quality of service but then at the same time we're spreading our resources very thin and um, also we're kind of going into debt to be able to achieve all this with the assumption that this is a a very short-term problem it's a bit like I mean Britain's been through crises like this before you know through wars and pandemics but it's different now because of uh, our lifestyle and what we used what we've become used to do you think that government can draw on this experience to legislate for more action on climate change. Where do you think the public sit with that at the moment? Yeah, I think it's it's it could go either way. I mean, in one way, others have said there's been a sort of shock to the system, which means that there's a possibility of new thinking on, on lots of different things. But on the other hand, a lot of people might just be concerned about their household finances and all kinds of really basic stuff and there also might be a sense of uncertainty about the future and sort of not wanting to deal with more than one thing at a time so I think it probably varies a lot across society. How do you think the public has responded I mean has the experience of dealing with coronavirus and what the public have had to do affected their attitudes towards making large-scale changes and sacrifices as a society in order to help combat climate change? Or do you think, as you've just hinted, that short-termism is going to prevail? Yeah, obviously, I think the, the understanding across society has been that this is a, a, a thing that needs attention right away. So so the short-term response was, you know, I think especially at the beginning of the lockdown was, was, was generally very good. I think we're getting into a bit sort of pandemic fatigue. And what we're seeing now is this uh, effects of the COVID response now starting to... Um, affect other things such as you know other types of medical care economic impacts which also affect people's well-being and there there is a sense of when can we get back to normal if you like that's probably the phrase a lot of people talk about these days yeah and of course the climate change is, is a different kind of emergency it's much more very very much slower and it has a sort of permanency a potential permanency attached to it so the desire is to get back to what it was like you know and maybe consumption doesn't necessarily have to go back to the levels that it was at uh, back in February. Your work is on how we can transition to a low carbon economy. And what we've been seeing, as Chris was developing earlier, is the way that things have be- have transitioned very rapidly. We've you know gone from doing no almost no consultations uh, in doctors' surgeries, for instance, on screen to uh, do an enormous number of them. So we have transitioned to a different future really very rapidly. Is that the same 
Is the same thing true for a low carbon economy? In some respects, yeah, I would say um, that tra- some of the things, yeah, right, it is a kind of transition that we've gone to. However, I think for some people, an assumption is that this is temporary and it will go back to how it was before. With, of course, some will not go back to how it was before, but I think people, yeah, things like doctor surgeries, we, we would like, most people would like to see a doctor in person. So I don't know how permanent that change will be. So in an energy transition, there there will be a permanent shift away from fossil fuels. So it's, it's not quite the same thing. The transition also is partly done on the supply side, where you, you, most people aren't really involved with that. So it's, it's the role of the energy industry to, to do that. And in terms of what individuals might have to do as part of the energy transition, that very much depends on how well how well we do the supply side, you know, and how much low carbon power we can produce and also how, how well we can do things like energy efficiency. So, you know, there, there's probably going to be some behavioural changes needed, possibly only for, sort of for a short term until we find out better ways to do things. But uh, yeah, the digital side of things has been really um, tremendous to see how much how much you can do with it. And I think that's going to be a really big help with the energy transition. And there is an opportunity if there are, you know, if there's a very large number of people unemployed, then one of the things where people could be most usefully employed is, for instance, you know, in green transition. I mean, whether it's, you know, replacing boilers or all sorts of things like that, it's creating new jobs in green energy for instance yeah absolutely it's it is a break in normality and and it does provide that opportunity to to rethink what we do on a daily basis and what values we have and how it fits into a a low carbon low resource world definitely and i think not just in sort of demand management not just on the energy side of energy production but also across things like land management and all kinds of things like vertical farming and lots of new ways to do things there's loads of great stuff happening, things like, you know, growing insects to feed cattle so they don't have to um, go, you know, feed on grain. Things like that, which are, there's just a tremendous amount of creativity going into that. So a lot of opportunity for entrepreneurs, for people thinking up new ways of, of using energy or, or, or dealing with resources. So as we try to live in a, a much more low resource world, be, uh, yeah, in a way for, for those who want to innovate and um, uh, get creative, there's actually yeah, a tremendous amount of opportunity. Some optimism. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> one final question for all of you this week. And that's what one thing have you learned about climate change from coronavirus? Jackie? I think for me, it's we should have learned the lessons uh, a long time ago, but he, here's, here's my kind of take on this. We didn't really succeed in convincing the world about climate change, quite honestly. I mean, it's just taken so long. We, we were talking about this in the 70s and 80s, and we could not persuade politicians to do something. And what's happened with COVID is that people have been able to connect up the pieces and tell a very different story, one which is both global, planetary, you know, things moving around, viruses jumping around and so on, and at the same time bringing it right down to the individual. Very, very personal. Climate change is just as personal. It is just as individual. So I feel that what I've been able to see is that there's a very different conversation going on. And of course, it's been brought to the fore by this idea of it's about survival. But in the end, climate change is about survival. So what I've learned is that you need to step out of the normal box of conversations and engage people in a very different way, both emotionally as well as with evidence, 
And here I've seen with COVID, people are reaching out for evidence. They don't want fake news. They want the real news. They want to see the facts and the figures. And so what I'm learning is how do you get that uh, across now for climate change? So I see a, a very different way that the public is reacting to evidence compared to how they reacted in the past to climate change. And I want to learn from that. But had you known what you know now, how could you have changed your previous messages about climate change? I think, to be honest, we spent a long time, of course, you have to do this in the scientific community, building the evidence base, um, but trying to persuade people through logic. And what was refreshing, of course, was when we saw, uh, you know, what was happening on the streets, Fridays for, for climate change and so forth, how young people sort of skipped over that and said, we believe the scientists, let's move on. So I think we became far too preoccupied. And that's really what I've learned. What would I do? Well, I wouldn't unleash a, a, a virus on the world. Of course not. But I think we should have made more of the, of the incidents that occurred around the world and allowed ourselves to be a little bit more... Um, Emotional. On, yes, emotional and expansive. And instead of standing behind, well, you know, we might potentially very likely uh, be in the 90% certainty. No, just say, it's going to happen, but it may not happen tomorrow. It's certainly... So being much more upfront about what climate change really is going to do to us and do to the planet. Chris, you're the great communicator of climate science. Does that all ring true with you? Yes, very much so. Um, I've, I've been obviously thinking about this and working on this for a while, working with lots of interesting people, neuroscientists and marketeers and narrative specialists and so on. And uh, we, we realised a, a few years ago that um, climate science community, in fact, scientists in general, operate under this sort of myth that, that science is very unemotional and uh, and we're all terribly impartial. And if we show any signs of emotion or indeed, if we become advocates or indeed activists, this somehow un undermines our trustworthiness. And that, that's a really deeply embedded condition under which um, most scientists operate. But, but we're all members of society. And, and so we came up with this idea of the informed citizen. Uh, and, in, and indeed, I'm an informed citizen. And, and the information that I have has been paid for pretty much totally out of the public purse. So I see I have an obligation uh, as well as an ability to deliver that. So the idea behind the 2071 play was that it was a fireside chat. It was me with my, I don't know, white coat or, or gown off. And the, the offer was, you know, if you want to come and hear the formal climate science with all the bells and whistles of caveats and, uh, and conditions, you know, by all means, come and listen to that. But this is different. This is me telling you what I feel and think about climate change. And, and it was clear that that had a, a real connection in a way that a public formal lecture did not. Very difficult to scale up. That's the only problem. And, and in a way, it's why David Attenborough has an edge because he's not constrained in quite the same way. In fact, quite the opposite. He's seen as a a figure of uh, of authority who's introduced people to the natural world over a long period of time. And so he has a level of permission to say things that uh, that many climate scientists still feel uncomfortable about. Um, so we're seeing a lot more of that, though. Um, uh, you know, uh, uh, Jim Hansen in the States has stepped out of his formal role as a climate scientist, and he's an activist now. You know, and the climate science community has has always, I think, erred on the side of least drama, uh, and, and when you talk to strategists, they say, no, actually, I need to know 
the absolute worst that could happen, even if the probability is tiny, please tell me about it because I need to understand that and then work back from it in the way that I make my decisions. So I think we're seeing a, 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 a big shift in the way the climate science community sees its role in delivering value and benefit to society. It's not going fast enough, uh, but it's very encouraging. And one of the things that you know I see from that is that how the arts and humanities are absolutely critical to science because arts and humanities know how to do that emotional stuff and we need those relationships. So let me turn now to Rachel. What about you? What what have you learned about climate change from coronavirus? Yeah, I think it, it, it created a shock to our sort of modern lifestyle that I think nobody saw it coming. And it was quite dramatic and especially uh, restrictions on how much we can consume in terms of travel, um, interruptions to supply chains and things like that. So we sort of got a bit of a, a reality check on <laughs> that we, we, we're not invincible in terms of keeping everything going, growing indefinitely. And we and we've we've done that for the first time in a in a sort of modern highly interconnected society. So it, it doesn't compare exactly to previous pandemics or previous uh, situations like wars. So yeah, we learn we learn what, what what we did okay and where things failed. Um, and I think it was a, a mixed response. Of course, it could have been better or worse, but it's how we dealt with the situation where we were dealing with this new disease that we didn't quite know how it was going to play out. Um, and also how quickly it spread um, across the world um, due to international travel. So I think uh, in, in, in specifically in terms of the UK, I think it revealed some strengths in our, um, I call it our economy, but, you know, it's really our, our way of life as well, um, that it has some strengths in terms of it, it, you know, we could manage to do things like furlough people and keep everything going. But at the same time, you can see that there's a limit to that and, and our economy is fragile. In, in terms of it, its dependence on high consumption activities and especially services, which which tend to disappear very quickly when you have something like a pandemic and people can't travel. So I think, you know, this the idea of a more robust economy and one that's very innovative and responsive to changes. So very creative, you know, a lot of um, encouragement, I think, for, for startups and people thinking up new ways to do things and also better mix of manufacturing and services and less dependence on imports, especially, um, you know, we have quite large energy imports, which is scary if you think about um, what would happen if there are interruptions to that for any reason. So, uh, yeah, I think we should act really decisively to reduce emissions as, as fast as we can, Rather, but, but we have to deal with the energy trilemma, you know, of affordability and... Um, security as well as sustainability so it's, it's, it's the whole thing of balancing these these competing strains but but really now start to really transition towards a low resource use society but hopefully one that isn't very isn't isn't horrible to live in and then we can still have a nice life well thank you very much for that and uh to all of you You've been listening to Coronavirus, The Whole Story. This episode was presented by myself, Vivian Parry, produced by UCL with support from UCL Health of the Public and UCL Grand Challenges and edited by the totally lovely Keris Bradley. Our guests today were Professor Jackie McGlade and Chris Rapley and Dr Rachel Freeman. If you'd like to hear more of these podcasts from UCL Minds, subscribe wherever you download your podcasts or visit ucl.ac.uk forward slash coronavirus. Don't forget, the UCL Beyond Boundaries Conference is taking place all this week until the 29th of October and you can get involved on the UCL website. 
This podcast is brought to you by UCL Minds, bringing together UCL knowledge, insights and expertise through events, digital content and activities open to everyone. Hope to be with you again soon.